0: Hi everybody, I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, you're gonna meet Cal Henderson, co-founder and CTO of Slack, the collaboration hub that helps over 12 million users get work done. Cal oversees Slack's engineering teams and sets a technical vision for the company which went public in 2019 and has a market cap of over $16 billion. Before Slack, Cal led engineering at Flickr through its acquisition to Yahoo. Cal personally is an expert in scalability, having authored the best-selling book, Building Scalable Websites. He was a pioneer in the use of APIs and created the basis for OAuth and Embed, which are widely used by YouTube, Twitter, and many others. It's no surprise that Cal is a Fortune 40 Under 40 honoree. Let's welcome Cal. Hi, Cal. How are you doing?
1: Hi, I am doing well, you know, all things considered for 2020, as well as anybody could be doing
0: all things considered for 2020. Cal, so I want to quickly first step back. For anyone who's not one of your 12 million and rapidly growing users, what's Slack in your own words? And then we'll talk a little bit about how you got there.
1: Yeah, sure. So Slack is a channel-based messaging platform, which is a way of organizing discussion and communications for teams that work together, and that also brings together kind of all of the applications that you use to get work done. So it's used by organizations, small and large from like two, three person startups through to the world's largest and most complex organizations across all kinds of different industries. And it's also, I think, a way you can think about it and a way we've been thinking about it more over the last year is it's kind of like a digital office, uh, you know, in a time where we don't necessarily have our regular headquarters. So like a persistent place for your like colleagues, employees to connect and find and exchange information. So it's a, a way for groups of people to, to work together.
0: So Slack is not your first startup. How did you first join Ludicorp and meet your co-founder, Stuart Butterfield, which then became Flickr? And that in its own right had a massive outcome before you guys even started working on Glitch, which then became Slack. So we'll go, we'll come back to Glitch and Slack, but talk through Ludicorp <laughs> becoming Flickr and that that outcome.
1: Yeah so it's like it's a long story with a, as you said like a couple of failed attempts at making video games but because the easy version I was um living in the UK I'm, I'm I'm British and Stuart who's the Slack CEO and and my co-founder was working on this online game he was in canada at the time and i was just hugely interested in the project i was a big fan of it i was doing really interesting things with the technology but also it was a time before there were really online games so the idea of a massively multiplayer online game was a really new thing and doing it over the web was exciting and i was just such a fan that i um eventually kind of harassed him into employing me i was like so wanted to work on this game and i eventually joined the company but at a time It was this 2003. It was like post WorldCom, Enron, global financial collapse. It was a terrible time to be doing a a startup in Canada in a brand new area. And so, company had no money. And so, we had this idea to spin up a side business, which we thought we'd work on for a couple of months, that could then make enough money to pay salaries to work on the game. And that side business was Flickr, which became the, the photo website. So that was supposed to just be a quick side project, so we could then get back to building the game. That was the real idea.
0: That really is an incredible story. And if you didn't have that same sort of experience all over again with Glitch and Slack, I would I would dig into just that one. But before we dig into your learning from sort of failed starts, talk a little bit about Glitch, which was your, your second big swing, which ended up becoming Slack for everybody.
1: Yeah, so when Flickr was acquired by Yahoo, and we stayed around and worked on that and kind of grew it for a little over four years, and then we realized that what we really wanted to do was get back and try and make the game again you know the kind of the state of the art the internet gaming technology had moved on really significantly in that time and we thought it was an even better time even more exciting to try and start something again and make the game. And so the second time around, we made the evolution of the game. And this time the first time it was called Game Never Ending. The second time it was called Glitch. Same set of co-founders, all from Flickr. And we worked on that for four years and we had plenty of funding and you know it was a, a much better environment in which to to go and try and do this thing. And we failed at it again this time we spent a lot more money failing at it than than the first time which was very unfortunate it was a a fairly terrible experience actually it was the second time around really getting back to trying to build the thing that we'd wanted to the thing that we're passionate about we'd built up the company this time we had about 50 people at peak and it was really you know trying to turn our, our vision into a successful company it was clear after those four years that what we were doing was never going to be a commercial success to the same extent to the kind of money that we would poured into it it was never going to make financial sense as a business maybe we could have it kind of limp along as a lifestyle business but it was never going to grow to the scale that we had kind of envisioned for it and so we decided to shut that down we realized that that we needed to shut that down and while we were doing that we were trying to think we really liked working together. We're trying to figure out what we were gonna do next together. And we realized that the set of tools that we'd built for communicating while we're working on this game and the way that we worked, we never wanted to work another way again. We, We really liked that way of interacting even though the company hadn't been successful. And we thought if we as a small distributed kind of tech company, felt that way then maybe others would too and at the time we were split between san francisco vancouver and canada and new york so we operated in a kind of semi-distributed way with a couple of different offices
0: really is so remarkable that in two different instances in your life you guys have had the discipline and you know i don't really love the word pivot because i think everything in life is iterative but you've had the discipline to basically be very effective in shifting focus. From ludicorp to then flickr glitch to now slack why do you think that worked and i sincerely love your kind of openness to being like it was a failed attempt it was terrible you know everyone always talks about how things are up into the right and so easy and i think any great founder knows it's absolutely not the case but why were you guys effective what do you think made it work
1: you know when you look at the pattern it seems like we did the same thing twice but i think there's there's many things which are different about them as well so the first time around it wasn't so much of a hard switch as we thought we'd do something for a while and then come back. You know, it was supposed to be a, a short kind of time-bounded side project. Whereas the second the second time around was switching to Slack, it was really, this thing isn't working, we're going to shut it down. So I think from the outside, they both look like the same kind of sequence of events and the same kind of pivot, but they were very different kind of in reality. When I think about Flickr, it was that just became inevitable at some point after we'd spent a few months on it we realized it was gaining momentum in a way with, that we didn't expect you know and i think in many ways much like slack we stumbled upon the right amount of kind of combination of extrinsic factors of things that were changing in the world at the time and for Flickr that was digital cameras had really just started becoming the norm well you know I think they still weren't out selling film cameras but they were starting to be ubiquitous and also the first cell phones had cameras in them so people had a camera that they had everywhere with them were taking a ton of photos and had nothing to do with them you could get them printed like a regular old photo but it seemed like there must be something else you can do with digital photos especially when you're taking a lot more it was really that timing you know that we just lucked into this particular category and in fact when you look at the very first version of flickr that we launched it changed very rapidly over the course of the first couple of months into a completely different product and much more like the product it is today in fact it started as a kind of real-time multi-user channel based chat tool much more like slack than flickr is although also very different to slack and i think when I think through both of the games, but especially both of the products that came afterwards, the the kind of line between the two that's most consistent is that um, we, you know, had had an idea in a space, uh, you know, a like working prototype of something and a belief about it that w- turned out to be lucky because of other things that were happening in the world at the time that maybe were conscious or unconscious decisions from us. But I think more importantly than that, then they both iterated very rapidly with real customers in the face of understanding what was happening. With Slack, the the two kind of core concepts at the core of the product, the idea of channels for communication and the platform aspect of bringing together all of the other applications that you use in the workplace, that has very much stayed like true to our original vision of when we started building the product. But all of the details are very much a reaction to how we, talked to customers, how we looked at our first kind of alpha and beta users and understood how they were using it, understood the problems that they had, that we had, and the problems that organizations had that we didn't, because not every organization was shaped exactly like us. I think for the first couple of years of Slack, Slack worked best as a product if you were exactly the same size as our company, of whatever size that happened to be that month, because we were really building it for ourselves. But I think it got to be a much better product as we started to understand our customer problems just outside of our own problems, if that makes sense.
0: There's clearly some discipline underlying or some sort of moment where you guys call it that is very unique to you guys as founders, where you said, this other thing is definitely not working and we need to go put our chips here. If you wanted to share with everybody listening at various stages of building and scaling companies, a a big learning that you had in that, or a moment of honesty that you felt like you really, when you look back, it was a make it or break it moment for you. Tell us a little bit of how that feels or what that looks like.
1: Yeah, I think that's a real thing, especially through the second game. You need to, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, and I think this is especially the kind of Silicon Valley mindset, is you have to have an irrational belief in your own abilities to become successful. You have to believe you're going to get to where you think you're going to go. Now, when I look back at, especially the last year of working on the second game, it's clear in retrospect that it wasn't working and it wasn't going to work i think we were trapped in that loop of if we just do the next thing if we just add the next feature if we just change the way we talk about it in marketing or in pr that next thing is just going to bend the line enough that this is going to be a success and i think we sat on that kind of unfortunate fence of it not being definitely not being successful enough but also not being enough of a failure to make it obvious that we should stop and I think it was you know, after a year of being in that situation that we really came to terms with it in, and said, you know what, Th- this isn't working. It's great that we had this kind of self-belief, but it's turned out to not be true. So instead of just trying to tweak our way to success, it just wasn't going to happen. So we need to take a hard look and step back. And I think that's difficult to, and certainly was for us in the kind of, while well, we're in the thick of it, to understand the difference between that kind of pre-product market fit phase which when you then become a successful company of finding your way to to that product market fit versus a you have been iterating on this long enough that if you were going to find it you would have found it and it's tough because you hear stories one don't hear quite so much anymore now because it's a little bit old was Rovio with Angry Birds, that game that was incredibly popular, you know, big franchise built off it. And it was something like their 35th game. And it was their last try before they were going to give up and fold the studio. And then it was amazingly successful. So who knows, maybe success is just around the corner. That's a little little bit different, you know, with a kind of hit driven business like that. But, you know, there's a comes a point at which, yeah, you've got to kind of face reality of, of what's been happening.
0: I love that. And I really appreciate that. So I want to transition Cal to Slack sitting at the intersection of tremendous work trends, particularly the need for communications across distributed teams. So let's start with first, what has allowed Slack pre-COVID to scale so rapidly? And then we'll come into post-COVID.
1: Yeah, I I think much like with Flickr or the different set of circumstances, it was extrinsic factors that were already happening in the world that happened to have this confluence at the right time. We happened to be there with the right product at that time. I think for Slack, one of those factors was the rise of consumer messaging. So Compared to a decade before, people were used to iMessage, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, WeChat, Line as the way that they talked to their friends and family and sometimes to their co-workers as well. So people were no longer just using email or, in fact, rarely using email to, to talk to their friends. Part of that is the rise of the smartphone as well. You know, people had a device in their hands that was just much better at other mediums of communication. That was definitely happening. At the same time the really big trend in software in the workplace and in the enterprise over the last decade has been proliferation of software tools we've gone from buying software from kind of one or two mega vendors like you know an sap and ibm an Oracle through to, you know, the average medium-sized enterprise today by software from more than a thousand different vendors. There's been this massive kind of fragmentation of software and specialization of software tools. Some of that is because of SaaS, some of that is because of mobile, you know, changing business models that allow there to be more and more niche software vendors. Some of that is just because of the kind of general explosion of software technology. You know, the whole software is eating the world essay from quite a long time ago now. And I think those two factors, you know, the consumer messaging of people expecting a different way to communicate when they're outside of the workplace and all of these other fragmentation of tools meant that we were primed to sit at that space in the middle. I think there's a there's a further little tweak on that, which comes from the consumer side experience, is that when you look back at consumer versus business technology over the last, say, 20 years, pre kind of modern internet boom, the kind of state of the art was in software for the workplace because that's where money came from. And then in this millennium, which is such a strange phrase, because of the kind of rise of consumer tech and driven by the smartphone, somewhat driven by kind of social networks, There's been so much money in the consumer side that consumer experiences have gotten really good and the state of the art on experiences is on the consumer side. And so there's all of this expectation for people of how they would interact with technology that wasn't generally true in software that they used in the workplace and so not necessarily on purpose, we tried to create a consumer-like experience for the workplace so that it would be fun and easy to use. I think a big piece of that early on was our supporting emoji across a whole bunch of different platforms to make workplace communication like a little bit more casual and a little bit less serious.
0: Of course, I think we all love that. We're sitting in our homes. It's, you know, the almost the end of 2020 and work as we've known it in so many ways has changed permanently. I want to just ask you, what are your predictions and you have such a unique point of view from the helm of where you sit at how you think work is going to evolve over the next five to 10 years. So I want to start by asking what are your biggest bets? If you had to you know, be a betting person, put the chips on black, what are the one or two things that you just feel are inevitable right now that you're seeing from your helmet slack?
1: Yeah, I- You know, if you'd asked me that question a year ago, it probably would have been a very different set of answers. I mean, as as are the answers to many questions asked a year ago, as the, as the world has shifted so much. As I think about that, it has a lot to do with remote and distributed work, and in some ways, that was a trend that was already happening. You know, there was already kind of at the fringes more people being working remotely, some more organisations, though not at massive scale, being being fully distributed. But maybe we've seen a five or ten year acceleration in that because of because of the pandemic. And to some extent, we'll see what sticks post-pandemic, although it's hard to imagine a post-pandemic world right now, when people are able to go back to the office, what's going to be permanent about the changes that we've seen? And I think that definitely there's going to be a permanent shift towards more distributed and remote work. We've recently launched the Future Forum, which is a consortium around kind of the future of work and transformational work. And we did a, a recent study with a whole bunch of organizations looking at employee experience in the workplace. And in that survey today, only like 11 and a half percent of knowledge workers wanted to return to an office full time to work. Now, that's not to say that the other 88% of people want to be fully remote. Most people want to be hybrid. They want to spend some amount of time working from home, some amount of time coming into the office, being there in person, which I think is really going to shift the role of the physical office it's no longer going to be the place by default that people come and sit and do individual collab you know individual contributor type work sit in silence at their desks typing into their computer because people can do that at home without having to have the commute but it will be the place where you do collaborative group-based kind of whiteboarding style work and things which are best done in person but that brings a whole bunch of challenges you know like people feeling isolated and lonely people having difficulty building relationships with your colleagues. You know, something that we've definitely seen within our organization and and our customer companies as well during this time, is people who join a company during the pandemic don't build a lot of those kind of soft relationships across the organization. Sure, you meet your manager and your immediate coworkers, but not the people who you would talk to in the elevator or, or at lunch or have a hallway conversation. And then there's that kind of ambient awareness of what other people are working on and um, that you just get from being in a physical space with people. And I think we're starting to see some of those challenges try to be addressed by technology, but I think there's no obvious silver bullets yet of how you bridge that gap. So as far as predictions go, a lot more remote when we, when we can, a lot more hybrid work, and some probably long period of coming to terms with exactly what that means for how people collaborate and how people relate to the office, which was, you know, has pretty much been unchanged since the introduction of the office in, in America. And that was, that was a long time ago.
0: Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Cardin knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close a round. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. As you think about whatever you can share as, you know, what Slack's, specific to Slack now, is really excited about for the future. I'd love just to get a sense of the the places that you guys feel are going to be critical.
1: As we move to a more distributed model, I think the most critical piece is going to be how are we able to still do complex collaborative work together? Because I think the hybrid model works extremely well, um, or the distributed model works extremely well for individual focused work. And in some ways, the current situation with people working from home has been a great leveler. We're an organisation with with offices offices around the world. Prior to the pandemic, we'd have many situations in which there might be eight people in a room and two people dialed in remotely, and that was always a much worse experience for the people who are dialed in. Now, during this period, the last seven or eight months, everybody is on the same page. You know, everybody has the the same basic experience of we're all dialed in individually. So, what does that look like when we go back to a hybrid model? How can we bridge the difference between those two and make sure that we make the most of that opportunity. In another way, what we saw for for us and for other organizations at the beginning of the pandemic back in march was that priority number one was take how we work already take how we work in an office and transfer that online as quickly as possible and just could stay working in the same way but we're all in our houses the evolution for us over the last say six months has been how can we work differently in a way that takes advantage of the asynchronous nature way more that allows people to work flexible in different hours to each other and still still have that same kind of tight collaboration and be able to you know work on things together when warranted but also not be so synchronous around how we do individual work or you know do we do we need to get everybody together synchronously for doing company all hands or should those be asynchronous recorded things this is things that we'd already kind of tackled or you know or struggled with as an organization as we'd been more and more distributed globally although in offices starting to think about more seriously for if you know what do we need people's synchronous attention for and what can we optimize around people's ability to work much more flexibly
0: i love that and I, i just want to take a minute and repeat that because i think there are some incredible insights in that which is let's just pretend we work hybrid for the rest of time some portion is in the office, some portion is at home. Because of that, let's say that you can work whatever hours you want to work. We're no longer you know, clocking in at like you know a, a nine to seven or nine to six in an office window. It's do work when you want to. So how do you not only make people able to do that, but then when they do actually come together, how do we make that coming together hyper-efficient, really valuable? I want to just ask like a deep, beautiful worldview question, which is What do you think we're unlocking personally? Like, what do you think we're unlocking as a society right now? You know, if we can get to a place where we can do this asynchronous work and just how do you emotionally kind of process that unlock? That
1: uh, it's a great question. I think the one obvious one is that it allows us to employ many more people who were you know were excluded by the by the default system that we had a year ago you know especially see when i look within the organization we have a huge amount of parents because of the pandemic have had to take on uh, more childcare duties than previously and when we allow a flexible schedule we allow more people to participate in the workforce so i think that's you know one huge win by itself i think the next one that comes after that is people are able to do that in a way that works for them with a schedule that works for them uh, whether that's you know around childcare or caring for members of their family or you know other responsibilities in their life within the company we have a huge mix of people who work better in the morning work better in the evening or work better in the middle of the night you know in the case of many engineers who keep super weird times and that's what works best for them i think there's a a trap that we that we fall into when we have a physical office that where we equate people being there sitting at their desk with working I think this is especially the case for engineers is that because it's historically very hard to measure engineering productivity, that we use weird proxies for it, like you are sitting at your desk, you came in on time, you didn't leave early it would be better if we didn't do that. And we were able to judge people on their actual work. As work becomes more complex, more collaborative, that becomes harder and harder to you know, how you, how you think about measuring organizational output and organizational effectiveness. But I think it's we are being forced to in this era. And I think that's a good thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that it will be easy for us to do, but I think it's something that we have to do.
0: I love that. And it transitions beautifully into my next question, which is, what do you feel like you've learned through scaling specific to COVID of how you've been managing your technical teams and what's been easy and what's been hard? So the core of the question is through COVID, managing big, rapidly scaling technical teams, what's been easier than prior world and what's been harder?
1: I don't, I don't want to make this answer too generic, but it's going to sound quite generic, which is that I think one of the, the biggest challenge that in general modern organizations have is not The ability to know where to go, although for some organizations that can be a challenge, but for how to change direction to go towards the thing that you need to get to. So it's like organizational agility. I know, you know, this thing isn't working. We know we have to change it, but how can we get everybody pointed in that other direction? I think the biggest challenge for enabling that kind of agility is organizational alignment. As an organization gets larger, communication always gets harder. So, you know, if you draw one of those graph diagrams of every point, connecting to every other point as your organization grows the points of communication grow geometrically and The larger the organization the harder it is to communicate anything the harder it is to get everybody pointed in the same direction and i think that is becoming in general but especially this year that's changing more rapidly you know the need for organizations to be able to respond to change whether it's you know changing technology changing business environment changing economic context or you know like pandemic context in which they're operating that need to change quickly to respond to things is getting You know, is is a more acute need, but that doesn't make it easier to change the direction of your organization. So, really long-winded way of saying the most important thing for you know growing organizations is really around clear, repetitive communication, and how you know the the whole thing of leaders remind people what's important. Once you figure out what's important, repeating it again and again and very clearly, I think is hugely, like a a huge part of the role of kind of any organizational leader. One of the challenges. I think that that many leaders face is that you will be repeating the same things over and over again. What you think is important right now, what's top of mind, what you need to focus on. But each individual person in the organisation might only ever hear that once from you, and you know they hear 10,000 other things a day. And you know, and how do you make sure that people are truly focused on what is important right now? And it's not because people wander off and do things that aren't important because you're not reinforcing that message well enough. And I think on the one hand you have even kind of even less touch points in this era for communicating things clearly on the other hand there's more more emphasis and more focus on communication because deliberate communication is much more all we have now when we're in this virtual world. When I think about the things which break down in this in this way of operating, there's the kind of day-to-day collaboration, but there's also the kind of broad organizational alignment and messaging, like what is it that's important? What is it people need to focus on? And you know, what does the next quarter, the next six months, the next year look like for the organization?
0: Did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur and what did that look like growing up?
1: No, I definitely didn't. And I think growing up, I didn't even really understand or know that that was an option. I remember I had like a, there was like this career counseling day type thing in high school, like filled out a long questionnaire and it said that I should make window frames. And I was like, "Mm, I feel like the catalog of possible jobs if it contains window framer is old and strange. But the idea of starting my own business, just like it's not something that was in my family and it's not something that I saw friends do and never really saw it as an opportunity. I always just thought, like, I knew I wanted to be a software engineer. I've known that for a long time. I I love making software, but I thought that that would be that something, I thought that would be something that I'd do in the context of working for somebody else. And I really just kind of stumbled into it, I think.
0: I wanna go quickly to you being a serial entrepreneur and the fact that you've been part of now big swings what have you learned about yourself through that? That maybe the first time wasn't as easy, the second time you got better at it. And what surprised you about entrepreneurship? So, two questions. One, what did you get better at the second time? And then, just in general, for everyone who, you know, many dreamers listening who want to be an entrepreneur, what surprised you about entrepreneurship?
1: I think the thing that I'm definitely better at is. Being a manager of people, like that's never a skill I'd really built before. I was an individual contributor. I liked writing code. I love making stuff. (laughs) And very quickly to kind of have any kind of leverage at scale, it needs to be about how can you not just do more yourself, but multiply that out. You know, we're we're a company of 2,500 people today. It can just, of course, do more than a company of 10 people. You know, there's just so much more, so much more potential there. But under being able to step away from what you do as an individual contributor and understand that being a multiplier is the the most important thing, I think, is the, you know, the skill that I've built.
0: It's not just a manager. You're being a multiplier. That I've never heard somebody be so eloquent in what the job of a manager is. That's pretty awesome, Cal.
1: Thank you, and now I've forgotten what your second question was. <laughs>
0: what surprised you because- you know,
1: Oh, there is so many things that need to happen as kind of like a keep the lights on, keep a business running that are not what you're trying to do as a business. And I think that's interesting in a couple of ways. One is which when you're a small company and you're an entrepreneur, you will just do a lot of things and that are nothing to do with your expertise that are actually kind of super low leverage work, but people got to have health insurance and be paid and like got to deal with getting the window in the office that's broken, replaced and you know, stuff like that. There's a lot of stuff that needs to happen. But I think what you then later learn about that is what are the things that we shouldn't be spending time on and we should outsource because you can't do everything. So let's do the things which are differentiated and you can do a better job at and then everything else don't don't worry about as much as you can and outsource.
0: I like it a lot. Cal, I could talk to you forever. Another thing I wanted to just quickly dig into, all entrepreneurs and founders have their habits, and you now are truly a professional entrepreneur in some cases. What are the habits that keep Cal sane? What are the things that you personally swear by that you've had to learn over time keep you on the track?
1: Uh, I I think a big one for me is getting exercise, which has been especially difficult this year, because a lot of my exercise came from like commute, I I walked to and from work when we had an office. And, uh, you know, that would be like, you know, a few miles a day. And I think it's not just the exercise, but the separation from being at work and being at home. I have two young kids. When I'm at home, I wanna spend time with my kids and be separated from work and having that transition time and also you know, getting exercise, being able to disconnect between the two was hugely helpful. That's just been so difficult this year where my commute now exists of walking down a flight of stairs and then, then I'm at work. So I've had to be very deliberate about making sure I get out of the house and walk around. But one of the one of the things that I've been doing there's this service called City Strides that lets you map all of the roads you've walked in your city. And I'm trying to walk on every street in San Francisco where I live. I'm not I'm not very far through it right now, but I've been doing that as a forcing function of like let's get out the house to not just around my neighborhood.
0: Wait, I love that. I'm going to City Strides. Um, I'm going to yep. go download that. That's a really good hack. Last question on you. You know, I I think that all of us had to get better at one thing as a leader. What's the thing over time that you had to continue perfecting that you felt was the most important leadership quality that you needed to have?
1: I think it is probably personal time management, which is that especially as an organization gets larger and more complex, you can or there is always something to be responding to. There are always things to do and they are rarely the highest leverage use of your time. So I think making sure that something I've been trying to do at the beginning of each week, at the beginning of each month, what are the things that are actually important that I need to move forward for the business and making sure I spend enough time on those things because the small decisions, the reacting to stuff that can fill up any amount of time. And it's really important that you focus on the things that are gonna move the needle.
0: I totally agree. Cal, we're going to quickly go into our quick fire round. It's really straightforward, really simple. To date, what was your coolest pin moment so far for Slack?
1: I think it's probably, you know, there, there's been so many kind of obvious ones of, you know, like big customers or becoming a public company, but really it's like the first time seeing somebody I didn't know out in the wild using Slack for work, like in a coffee shop on a, you know, on their phone, on the bus, uh, just seeing seeing it be a part of people's lives is just incredible.
0: Okay. fast forward to 2022. How many days a week do we spend in offices on average across the United States?
1: That's, well, I hope the answer, 2022, I hope the answer is more than zero. Uh, So fingers crossed on that. All right, so average right now is like 250 in post-pandemic world, like 100, I'm going to say. That's averaging out fully remote, part-time people.
0: So you think 2.5 per week?
1: Yeah, 2 to 2.5 per week on average. Some people less, some people more. Uh, But maybe that's optimistic.
0: I like it. I think actually you and I are uh, on the same number in that regard. What is your favorite interview question that you like to ask an engineering hire that really gets to the core of whether or not they, they have what it takes?
1: Oh, that's a tough question because I I think I think that's a trick. I think there isn't really a question you can ask together at the core of, you know, whether you'd want to work with somebody. I think it's like multifaceted and there's a lot to it. But I think when when I talk to to candidates, I want to get to know them as whole people. So, you know, understand what they're interested in that isn't necessarily just like how do they write code and deliver software, you know, but what, what are their passions and what do they care about?
0: I like that. And I can tell from this, you were such a people person in such a, you have so much energy. It's so magnetic to be around you. And I really can sincerely feel how much you like to be with people. Um, Last question, other than Slack, if you want to pay it forward to any new product, service, food, it can be anything, any new thing that you've heard about that you're very excited about that everyone should hear about.
1: I'll cheat here and talk about, we have the the Slack fund, which is our, you know, like kind of investment fund around for for tech companies. I think that because of because of the nature of this year there's a whole bunch of interesting companies which are doing things online that you previously didn't used to do online so uh, i think a good example of that's probably hopin which is a platform for running conferences online and you know, it's a it's a new and green space that people are just starting to understand. But I think even going into future years, that's just gonna be a really huge space of understanding what are the things that we thought we had to be in person for that we're just not gonna be anymore. And there's gonna be a huge number of these springing up over the next few years.
0: I couldn't agree with you more and I love it. So everybody out there, let's quickly thank Cal. Cal, thank you so much for joining us today. Guys, if you don't already know about Slack and use Slack, head to Slack.com. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa von Tobel. Thank you so much, Cal, for joining us. We're so grateful.
1: Thanks for having me today. It was great.